everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Heart Podcast. My name is James Rudd, and today Dr. Andrew Perry takes over as the host, and he has a discussion with Professor Michael Renstra from the University Medical Center in Groningen in the Netherlands. And they discuss his manuscript, which is called The Prevalence and Determinants of Atrial Fibrillation Progression in Paroxysmal Atrial Fibrillation. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you for meeting with me today, Professor Reinstra. May I have you introduce yourself for our listeners? Uh, sure. Thank you for inviting me. My name is uh, Michiel Reinstra. I'm a professor of clinical cardiology at the University Medical Center Groningen in the Netherlands. Beautiful. I'm very excited to talk with you today about a paper that was recently published in Heart, uh, titled Prevalence and Determinants of Atrial Fibrillation Progression in Paroxysmal Atrial Fibrillation. Uh, it's an interesting article, and I look forward to discussing it in greater detail with you. First off, uh, the question that we'd like to ask is, why did you do this study, or why did you feel like this was an important question to, uh, to answer? Well, this is one of the first publications of the RACE 5 uh, consortium. We built within the Netherlands a large consortium of both uh, preclinical, translational, and clinical investigators. And um, one of the leading topics in uh, that uh, consortium was studying the role of hypercoagulability and other mechanisms of atrial fibrillation progression. So uh, one part of that uh, large consortium and large collaboration was uh, this um, prospective cohort study in which um, we included patients with paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. So they have still self-limiting atrial fibrillation. So they're in a quite an early stage, you could say, of atrial fibrillation. And we implanted all our patients with an implantable loop recorder and is uh, capable of storing, of course, uh, the heart rhythm. And we were especially interested in atrial fibrillation episodes, of course, for 24-7, uh, up to uh, three years. So, so that's actually what we, uh, what we started. Excellent. And then I think some of those participants, they could be included if they had a Medtronic pacemaker or device implanted instead of the loop recorder, correct? Yeah, that's a terrific point to make indeed. Yes. Uh, we used one company with one specific algorithm to determine fibrillation. And that's of course available in the implantable loop recorders, but is also available in certain types of their pacemakers. So if the patient's had one of those specific types of pacemakers, um, they could also participate in the studies with, without additional implantation of a loop recorder. Yeah. So uh, very interesting about the, I'm not sure what the appropriate way to say, it, but I think you said the race V uh, yeah. study. Uh, tell me a bit more about that study, what it was, it sounds like it's primarily looking at the questions about hypercoagulability and progression of AFib. Uh, but tell us just a little bit more about the uh, the design of the study. The, my impression is that these aren't, it's not like a randomized trial, but like an observational perspective cohort study, correct? Yeah, that's completely correct. So it's indeed the race V or race five trial. We have a long tradition here of doing race trials. We started with the first race. So this is now up to the fifth race trial. That's why we call it race five. But indeed the V is also... Uh, part of the vascular uh, hypothesis we have in this uh, study. So that's uh, just to clarify. But indeed, this is not a randomized control trial. 
Um, this is a cohort study, which we just consecutive patients with paroxysmal fibrillation were included. Um, as I already mentioned, they were all implanted with an implantable loop recorder to record their rhythm for up to three years. But the inclusion, they were also um, deeply phenotyped, as we called it. So they underwent all the standard investigations that all atrial fibrillation patients undergo in uh, our country. So um, history taking, of course, medication, physical examination, echocardiography, halter monitoring, um, but uh, an echocardiography, but we did extra additional echocardiographic measures um, to not only measure the dimensions of the heart and specifically atria, but also the function of the atria. We did uh, vascular measurements uh, to have an idea about atherosclerosis. Um, we did CT scans in all these patients to know about their calcifications in uh, the coronary arteries and uh, also the amount of epicardial and pericardial fat, uh, et cetera. So they were very deeply phenotyped to start off with. Yeah, it sounds like there's going to be a lot of interesting work that's going to come out of this cohort in the future. So we yeah, look forward yeah, to, yeah, we look forward to hearing more about it. And I think once another specific question I had related to this cohort in specific to this paper is about the progression of AFib is that, it, you know, there was no guidance or direction about how to treat patients with atrial fibrillation, that they could be either treated with a rate control strategy or a rhythm control strategy, which might have some implications on some of the results uh, from this paper. Definitely, that's, that's an, uh, a great point indeed. Yes, um, what we did is we uh, included patients with uh, paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, and um, we let the treatment of their atrial fibrillation up to the discretion of the treating physician. And of course, we had some inclusion criteria that if the patient was uh, already uh, up for an ablation, they could not be uh, participating in this trial. Uh, but, but we let the treatment to the physician. And indeed, if you're very aggressive treating a fibrillation, you may prevent AF progression, uh, although data supporting that uh, is not widely available. And in our study, and as we also showed in this specific paper, we did not see any differences between rhythm control drugs or ablations uh, between the patients who developed atrial fibrillation progression over the years uh, versus those without progression. So it seemed like the treatments um, did not have that much uh, of an impact. Okay, very good. Um, I think one key differentiating between this study and other studies that looked at progression of AFib is the use of, you know, continuous rhythm monitoring with the implantable loop recorder. Are there other major differences between this and prior studies on this topic? It's indeed the continuous monitoring. I think that's the major difference with uh, other studies on atrial fibrillation progression. There have been some with continuous monitoring, but it was in pacemaker populations, which are a really different population from ours, um, because these were all patients with really early stage atrial fibrillation, I would say. And of course, the deeply phenotyping is also uh, something uh, uh, most of the other cohorts that have reported on atrial fibrillation progression uh, have not uh, those detailed information. And kind of going into uh, some of the results or some of the findings from the paper, you know, you report several known and novel factors associated with progression of atrial fibrillation. 
and you're looking at both clinical factors and some biomarkers. Looking at the clinical factors, you know, there's items there where, where they weren't too surprising, you know, mitral regurgitation and you know, presence of that. Uh, additionally, obesity, I think both of those have been shown to be associated with atrial fibrillation. Um, and then some of those biomarkers also maybe not too surprising, like NT pro BMP in there, you know, that's associated with progression of atrial fibrillation. But some of these, I thought, you know, they kind of caught my attention, which weren't things that I was necessarily expecting to see things like PCSK nine inhibitors or peptidoglycan recognition protein one, which I think is part of that yeah. hypercoagulation uh, hypothesis. So I don't know, taking a step back when you were looking at the data and just kind of analyzing it and mulling it over, what were the things that uh, surprised you or the things that you found most interesting from this? Uh, well, the determinants of AF progression um, um, were not uh, very surprising, although we felt that this was also um, a good thing that we found these markers that others also found, just as some sort of confirmation that uh, these, the, our cohort, we, we find things that were also published in the literature. I mm -hmm. think obesity um, has been related to new onset AF, but there have not been a lot of cohorts yet who also relate obesity to uh, atrial fibrillation progression. Um, so I th that's interesting. Also, the sex differences, of course, uh, uh, caught our attention that there is indeed differences between uh, men and women. Uh, there have been a lot of reports on sex difference these days. Uh, but we uh, uh, also see that there is a difference in the rate of AF progression and the risk of AF progression between the sexes. So that was of, uh, of course, interest. We expected actually that uh, left atrial volume index or volume uh, would be part of this um, determinants list. To our surprise, it's uh, not the volume that was uh, a strong determinant, but it's more the function of the atria, which of course, pathophysiologically is really interesting. And uh, mm -hmm. that, that uh, determines uh, 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 the risk of AF progression. And indeed uh, in the biomarker list, which we added uh, some secondary analyses, uh, there were some very interesting findings there. And for us, that was more an exploratory analysis to see what pathways are actually maybe involved in AF progression. And indeed, uh, anti-pro-BMP, that's a predictor of everything uh, in, in, in cardiovascular medicine, uh, more or less. So we, we found it here as a confirmation, of course. Uh, the others are, are uh, also, to our surprise, um, but we think um, they're, as you mentioned, um, involved in, in vascular pathways uh, in hypercoagulability pathways and which we believe um, is also of great importance if you think about progression of atrial fibrillation. Mm -hmm. You know, atrial fibrillation is long, for, for long we considered atrial fibrillation an electrical disease and I think more and more data um, is out there and uh, demonstrating that atrial fibrillation is more than an electrical disease. It's really a vascular disease. There's a strong relation with atherosclerosis. There's a strong relation with factors like obesity, but also hypercoagulability is there are a lot of mechanisms involved that all together set the stage for it fibrillation. Fascinating. Yeah, that's absolutely, uh, an absolutely interesting, super fascinating results. I was wondering, yeah, or tell me more a bit about your, your thoughts about how this maybe fits into that, that other literature about 
you know, this, the, the, I don't know, for lack of a better term, maybe call it the vascular hypothesis or these hypercraligable hypotheses. Where does this fit in amongst those other studies? Well, um, one of the studies that uh, I think uh, uh, helped us um, developing this hypothesis and, and, and set up this trial was uh, one of the sub-studies of the SIRT trial. The SIRT trial was a pacemaker trial, um, nicely demonstrating the risk of uh, uh, atrial high rate episodes uh, in causing stroke. Uh, but in that study, there has been a very interesting sub-study, which nicely demonstrated there was no temporal relation between having atrial fibrillation and the development of stroke. And if you take a more detailed look at those results, it was actually quite interesting that in quite some patients, a stroke happened before atrial fibrillation occurred. And uh, so that made us think that maybe it's not atrial fibrillation as a cause of stroke, but there is something going on in the atria. There is an atrial disease or atrial cardiomyopathy, as we call it these days, um, that may set the stage also via the hypercoagulability pathways, not only for atrial fibrillation, but also for stroke. Um, so maybe there is no uh, causative relation between stroke and atrial fibrillation, but it's more two different outcomes of the same disease process within the atrium. Um, and and, and you, you can think along these lines also for atherosclerosis linking to atrial fibrillation. Yeah, I find that absolutely fascinating and super interesting. And I look forward to hearing more about how that story or that line of investigation progresses over the years. And I'm sure, you know, more data we from... We try to contribute to that uh, a lot in the next few years. It sounds like we, we should expect uh, uh, more great things coming from, uh, from this cohort and from this group in the future. Um, yeah, thanks for, uh, thanks for spending the time with me. Uh, any concluding thoughts or remarks or ideas for the future? Uh, no, no, I, I think uh, this is a good summary of the trial. I invite everybody to, of course, read the manuscript and uh, keep your eyes open for follow-up uh, publications because uh, there will be uh, more to come. All right. Beautiful. Well, thank you again. And we'll talk to you again some other time.